Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. It's my unbelievable privilege tonight to teach this particular lesson. We're in 1 Peter. Pastor dealt with so expertly chapters 1 and then chapter 2 was dealt with. And then he saw chapter 3 and left town. Brother Lopez was nowhere to be found. Our illustrious leader, nowhere to be found when asked to do Bible study. I don't know if he's asked or not, I'm just assuming that. I do know that someone did turn pastor down when they asked this expert on 1 Peter to teach, and they conveniently had other obligations. And so it befalls me, my only saving grace at this particular moment, so we will hurry through the first seven verses of 1 Peter, the third chapter, is my wife is upstairs because our foster daughter is singing on the praise team in Super Church. My wife is not here, but let me tell you what we begin with. We begin with these words that probably, if ever could be misunderstood, twisted, manipulated, used in arguments out of context between husbands and wife, we find that taking place in 1 Peter, the third chapter. It's rather interesting. So let's open up and see. 1 Peter, chapter three. I will tell you this, we have 22 verses to make it through. We will not make it through. 22 verses. I'm usually given one chapter and it takes me at least six weeks, three classes a week to get through one chapter. I can't help myself. I cannot, I can't rush through things that I feel that God has placed in this word. How many believe that this is the inspired anointed word of God? How many believe that this word is inerrant? That means there's no errors in the word of God. How many believe that it was anointed by God, given to men to write his holy script? How many believe this is the roadmap of life? How many could say this is our foundation in which we base everything that we believe on this word? Now you can go by feeling and you can go by emotion, and I think that goes well with what we do as apostolics, but nothing replaces the word of God, amen. And so your emotion and your feeling can lead you astray, trust me. Emotions all the time confuse people. I deal with about 260 plus that are confused by their emotions on a weekly basis. And let me say this, the only thing that we know for sure is the word of God. It is the foundation in which the worlds have been framed, one poet says. He stated it like this, that the word of God, it never changes. But the word of God is always applicable to every person and in every situation in life. God's word is forever settled in heaven. And so when we open up this Bible, we know this, that regardless of political agenda, regardless of what is palatable or not, we know that God's word stands forever in heaven. We have to embrace this. Because today, this would be very inflammatory, at least. When we find these words, how the apostle Peter opens up and he says, likewise ye wives. Now here it is, men. Be careful, though. Because here it is, ready? Do we want to say it? Be in subjection to your own husbands. 
Now, there's a lot of us that would like to say, well, that's the way it works, right? It should work that way. But we know that God's word is anointed. We know that God's word is forever settled in heaven. We know that it is the roadmap of life. We know that God does not make mistakes and his plan is perfect for us. His word is what we establish our life upon. So we would have to trust this, that when this statement is made by the apostle Peter, that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands, we know that God has a plan, a plan for the house, amen. You see, God is doing this because he sees that there's something important that needs to take place in a husband and wife's relationship. There was, must be one that's in charge of the household. Somebody say amen. You're making me feel lonely up here. Wives, turn to your husband and just look him in the eye. You don't have to say anything. He feels at least as uncomfortable as I do. Husbands, now turn, no, I'm not gonna say that but be in subjection. So what God is trying to do is he's trying to allow us to see that though there be two individuals, both of them have, have two ideas. They've been raised two different ways. They walk into the marriage very capable, very, very proficient, no doubt. Though they may seem equal on paper, the Bible has say, stated that they are not to be equal doesn't mean that one's inferior and one's superior. That's not what the word of God is saying. He's saying, but for harmony to take place in the home, the wife must be subject to the husband. The apostle Paul, is, he's, he's really targeting something very specific here because he's echoing what the apostle Paul has stated. Y'all remember what the apostle Paul stated? The apostle Paul said these very similar words about submission in the home and, and the the wife is to submit themselves to the husband. It is to be in, in harmony with, with this idea of submission. She's to, to love, to obey, to follow after. Puts a great responsibility on, on men. I think pastor preached about this on Father's Day because that means as, as men, we have to be the head of the household. So we have to make a stand. We have to do what is right. We have to lead with excellence. It's our responsibility to lead in prayer, to lead spiritually. It's our responsibility to do what's right. It's our responsibility to help to shape and to guide our children. You know, I know the mother's the nurturer, ladies and gentlemen, but it's the man that has to decide we're going to church or we're going to be a spiritual house or this is what cannot come in our home. This is what we have to guard against. I've raised two teenage boys, and let me just say this. I'm not a technological person at all, uh, Brother Lopez. I, I know very little about technology. I have trouble uh, opening up iPads and figuring out all the settings. Uh, I love Brother Henderson and Brother Brzezinski because I usually just walk down to their office with my, my computer, and I just set it in front of them. I'm like, can you fix this? Can't tell you how many times I've walked into my class and opened it up, and I've I plugged in my brother Brown. We've done this a thousand times. I plugged in that little plug in to the projector and it doesn't work. And so I'm, I'm doing all this stuff, typing buttons and pushing things. And finally, I'm like, can, can one of you come up here and help me? And inevitably they come up and within seconds it's fixed. That's the generation. It's been a challenge for me. And, and I know that some of you, you parents feel the same way, but my greatest job is not to be successful in a career or a calling even. My greatest job is not to be successful in the kingdom of God if I can't be successful in my home. 
And so even though I can look at this and use an excuse and say, well, I don't understand everything there is about technology, that's not an excuse. I've got to learn some things. I've got to guard my home. I've got to, if my wife is to submit herself to me as the husband, then I've got to make sure I'm protecting the home. Now, hopefully, I don't know how you feel about this, but part of my job, and I take this very serious as a husband, is to protect the house. That's why when my wife in the middle of the night, which this happens frequently, she hears noises. It'd be so easy to say, well, you heard it, go deal with it. No, she's like, go, go see, someone broke in the house probably. And so what do you do? You, you, go, you go find out. Oh, fearless husband, walking down the hallway with a baseball bat or something else. That's my job, that's what I do, right? My job is other things, it's to provide, it's to take care of. Paul said it like this, if the wife is supposed to submit themselves to you as the husband, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I wonder if that was echoing through the Apostle Peter's mind as he was writing this down. Think of that, what did Christ do for the church? He gave his life for the church. So husbands, if you expect your wife to submit, and you've got to be willing to lay your life down. Would you give your wife, you give your life for your wife? Would you lay your life down? Well, then you can't expect her to submit if you're not willing to love to the point that you would give your life for her. You remember that first time that you held your, your firstborn in your hand? You've heard the phrase over and over. You've heard that phrase, remember that? That your parents say this all the time, your dad's setting close to you that, oh, I'd give my, wife, my life for my children. I'd give my life. And, and as a child, you'd think through that. That doesn't really make sense. Would, would they really? How do, how do they know? And I've heard people say that about your children, how much you love them and care for them. And it was hard to even fathom until I had my first child. And I'll never forget the first time I've held Grantland in my arms and something got a hold of me. And at that moment, I realized this, this must be how Christ feels about us, his children, our heavenly father. No one could have come into that room and said, give me that baby back. I would have laid my life down for that child. I don't know how it would have turned out, but I would have given my life if they demanded it because something got a hold. I, you know, when we submit ourselves to God, it changes who we are, ladies and gentlemen. Brother Lopez talked about it. You know, he talked about the kids being changed and he didn't agree with, with, the, with the adults, that gentleman that you were talking to. He said, I don't know if the, the parents can. Let me just say this. God can change the heart of any living human being. Whether you've had past failed marriages or relationships, when you come into truth and you get a hold of God, your old things are laid aside and you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm preaching to people that have hope and our hope rests in him because God is able to change us and transform us. I was in a revival a few years ago in Sitka, Alaska, and an 86-year-old lady walked in, a great-grandmother, and in that service, 
In the middle of service, she lifted her hands and God filled her with the gift of the Holy Ghost and we baptized her later that evening. Guess what? God transformed her life and she had three generations that came after her, but yet God transformed her and she had joy that was unspeakable. She had peace that she hadn't experienced before. She came from brokenness and her. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying God gives you the ability to follow scripture and live it with your life. But what the Apostle Peter's addressing here very specifically is, is someone that's married to a spouse that's not in the church. Because if we look a little further, it says, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word, that's in reference of the husband not obeying the word of God. What is the wife? They also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So not only is this for believers, but it's also for those that believe not. So those ladies that have husbands that are not in church, you hold on. You submit yourself. How is that going to work out? Well, according to the Apostle Peter, it's going to work out because it's by your conversation that you're going to win them to Christ. It's your conversation. What does the Apostle Peter say about this? Well, he talks about the conversation should be in God, in Christ. It should be uplifting. It should be... Uh, chase conversation it should be coupled without fear knowing that God has transformed you and that God has set you as an example to the unbeliever one of the most beautiful examples the most beautiful examples I've ever witnessed in my life is a precious young lady that brought four boys to church Sunday after Sunday and Wednesday after Wednesday she never failed to show up she would get up early in the morning. She had about a 30-minute drive, and she would prepare those four little boys, toddlers, every one of them, two babies at a time. She would get them ready for church and show up, and her husband would sit at home playing video games, service after service. She was faithful. In the summertime, she was faithful. When he would go out fishing and, and go out on his boat, she was faithful. In the wintertime, when there was feet of snow on the ground by the butler, because this was in Anchorage, Alaska, she showed up driving through, through horrific conditions to be at church. She was faithful. Her faithfulness, though it was years coming, those boys were teenagers and most of them were out of the house except for the last two. Guess what happened? That husband got a hold because she allowed her conversation to be a conversation that was chaste, a conversation that was godly, that represented Christ. Our conversations are not just for the husband and the wife all the time, but they are. Our conversations are entertaining angels unaware. Our conversations are that non-believers can see who we are and what we believe. Because a lot of us need to get this, that the only Bible that some people will ever read is your own life. He goes on, he begins to describe, because it's not just the conversation, it's not just submitting to the husband, but the Apostle Paul tells us that there's more. What is it? He, he said there's more. There, there must be that subjection while, while you, you place your life under your husband's guidance. When I, when I begin to look at the submission thing, I think about uh, several key players, and it's mentioned in verse six here. And one of those key players in the Bible that we look at complicated relationships is Abraham and Sarah. You all know the story of Abraham and Sarah. God extended covenant to Abraham. He was the father of many nations. Abraham was an incredible figure in the Old Testament. He was called a friend of God. No other person has been called a friend of God but Abraham. 
he in his old age with his wife were given a promise that they would have a child and, and here they were, well, far beyond childbearing days. Someone mentioned 40 years old uh, the other day was, was old to have a child. I was at camp where the McLaurin was talking about a businessman. His wife was 40 and had had a child and he had to tell all the students, he said, now you may not understand you 12 and 15 year olds what that means, but most people don't have children at 40 years of age. Well, think about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham did things in the marriage that we would look at and say, how, how unbelievable that this God-fearing man would lie about his wife, would, would doubt the promises of God. Isn't it amazing, though, that we find that Sarah still called him Lord? In other words, she still respected him and gave him honor. So what is the example? The example for us is we may not always do everything right, but that doesn't mean that it erodes respect and honor. You, you may be coupled with an unbeliever that doesn't live their life according to what scripture states, but there's still things that you can give honor and respect to. We look at Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca and Isaac had such a beautiful start to their marriage. It's a beautiful love story. But from the marriage bed to the deathbed, there's this horrific sentence that takes place that spans this time. It's almost like a massive chasm and there's a small plank that spans it, this one phrase. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah could have learned a lot from her mother-in-law, if she would have only met her, how to be gracious and kind and sweet. But you see, you had parents that were vying, that had two boys that they were doting and affection, and they put a division between mom and dad. We see this horrible, it's almost sickening to see where they end up, that, that mom would even manipulate and lie and, and take her son and train him to manipulate and to lie to his own father. These twin brothers brought up day by day, hour after hour in an atmosphere of favoritism and partiality and indulgence. How horrific it is to see that parents can cause confusion in the home if wives are not submitted to the husband and the husband is not giving honor to the wife. I wonder if the apostle Peter thought about that. That was on his mind because in verse six, he talked about how Sarah obeyed Abraham. So now, no doubt that he was very versed on the family tree and how that worked. We look at verse three and it says, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be hidden or let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is corruptible, even the ornamentation of the meek the quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. You see, the apostle Peter had in mind particularly that the woman who lives with the unbelieving husband. He draws attention to the unbelieving husband and the word that if they obey not the word, that this unbelieving husband and this believing wife, that they may be won by the conversation. So our conversation matters. But what happens when we have to submit to one that doesn't require us? Well, there's discouragement that takes place. 
It's discouragement. The simple word here when adorning, this word adorning is simply or. And it means full of this negative or direct negation. So a woman must not rely upon the outward adornment as a substitute for Christian character. But we all know this, that what we put on does not have the ability to make us holy because holiness comes from the heart. But what we put on does have the ability to make us unholy. So there are certain things that we cannot put on because it causes us to look like the world, to become like the world. And the apostle Peter is making a statement that we should not be adorned as the world adorned themselves. But what is beautiful in the apostle Paul, uh, Peter's eyes, and he's echoing what the apostle Peter talks about, separation and holiness and godliness, is for us to put on something that is incorruptible, something that comes from the inside. So it's commitment and it's relationship with God that allows us to understand where true beauty comes from. Not the putting on of adornment, but the adornment of what? A meek and a quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is the great price. So what is the apostle Peter saying? He's making the statement that we are to adorn ourselves with a quiet and meek spirit. We're to live our life according to what scripture teaches. For this manner of the old times, the holy women in verse five, also who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection into their own husbands. And of course, this is coming directly from Abraham and Sarah. He's talking about this wonderful couple that lived their life. Paul calls this the true heart. And he says, but let it not be hidden of the man of the heart, which is incorruptible. But look for true humility, true humility. The Christian Woman is concentrated on the development of Christian-like character, on the true inter-self, the unfading loveliness and righteousness and holiness. What Christ looks upon us as invaluable, namely a calm and gentle spirit. The principle here is that a woman's true adornment comes from within and not from without. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. And he goes on to say this, that the Lord Jesus Christ once showed his disciples a common hedgerow plant called the lily of the field. He made the statement in Matthew 6 and 28 and 29 that why take ye though the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They toil not and neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The glory of Solomon was put in from the outside but the glory of the lily was one that came from what was internal or inside because the lily grows from within. And if Solomon's robe could have been looked at through a microscope, we would see through that microscope, this expensive linen would appear as coarse and as rough as sackcloth. But if you take that flower, that lily of the valley, and you put that same microscope, you would begin to see a kaleidoscope of colors and precious weaving of the materials of that plant coming together. You see, the beauty was something that came from within that man cannot contain. Ladies and gentlemen, our holiness to God is a beautiful tapestry that has been woven from our heart of our character and our core values. Our core values matters, and God looks at the heart of a man and a woman. We begin to see it begins to unfold in chapters five and six, how Peter remind, reminds the Christian woman 
of what some did in the Old Testament times. And it says, for after this matter in the old times, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being subjection unto their own husband. And Moses, for instance, had the memory, no doubt, of his mother. The apostle Peter is quoting this. Because if we remember Mo Moses' mother, Jochebed, and what a remarkable woman that she was. First, that she had him. She had Moses in this most difficult time. They had a king's commandment that went forth and stated that if any child was going to be born of the Israelites, its head was to be broken and cast into the Nile River. And no doubt that this weighed heavy on this mother. But here she was, making a statement of her faith by allowing her and her husband to defy a mad king's orders. She made this statement inside of her that she was going to have a child and she was going to take this baby and preserve this baby's life. She hid him. She hid him in the bulrushes. She fashioned a little boat out of a basket and possibly that reminiscent idea of what Noah did on that great flood. She placed it down in the river and she sent her daughter to watch over. But Jochebed's true beauty is this, her strength and her compassion for her children. Because even though someone adopted, the Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses, you see, she held that child and she instructed that child and she taught that child. And all the schools of Egypt and the scientists of Egypt and the training that Moses went through could not rip him away from his core values and core beliefs. So this woman was subject unto her husband, but was subject unto a power that a king could not crush. You see, when Moses thought about his mother, when the apostle Peter looked at Moses as his inspiration and saw that this lady allowed herself to be in subjection of her husband and her lineage and her identity, that regardless of what the enemy would do to children around them, God was going to preserve her child. You know what I can say from this? Scripture allows us to come to this conclusion that if we submit ourselves to a godly man and that man is submitted to God, God will watch over the family. So mamas keep being submitted to what's right and what's true and what's holy. Husbands, allow your wife to take upon themselves to be godly examples of faith. Don't ever walk away from this covenant that God has made with the church and know this, that regardless of how the enemy may come against our families to try to destroy, to steal, and to kill everything that is pure and righteous and holy, that God will preserve his children and God will keep his hand upon our children. Amen. So they talk about as Sarah obeyed Abraham whose daughters are ye long and do well, and ye are not afraid with any amazement. In verse seven, it says this to the men. Now here's where we'll talk about the men. It says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Here it is. Give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together the grace and of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That word likewise simply means do as ye have been taught. Or in other words, what was good for the women to submit themselves is good for the men. So women are submit themselves. They're to submit themselves unto their husband. But the husbands in turn are submitted to the women. 
And how is the husband submitted to the women? By giving her honor. So if you remember back, we look in Genesis and we begin to see the unfolding of, of the story. You remember when the angel appeared, the angel of the Lord, and was going to tell Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child? Y'all remember that story? And so Abraham sees and, and recognizes that this is the angel of the Lord. And so immediately he tells his wife, Sarah, he says, go in the kitchen, take the finest flour, make incredible cakes, get that ready, the man of God is here. He himself runs out to the field and what does Abraham do? He finds a calf, he kills the calf. He brings that calf in and prepares it for the dinner. And then as he places that in the kitchen, you can see it all there, it's unfolded. He comes back in Genesis 22, one and three, and, and then 11 and 12, he begins to serve and begins to wait upon the men of God, the man of God, the angel of the Lord. And so how is he giving honor? Well, he's not requiring his wife to do what is above what he himself would do. So he doesn't just tell her to go in, as, as Brother Mac uh, talked about a couple Sundays ago, uh, go in and make me a sandwich. He's sitting back there, I'll call him out on it. How did that go for you, brother? Did you get a sandwich? But he in turn would go and make her a sandwich. And so he was sharing the responsibility and how we give honor to our spouse is we share the responsibility of the household. So we have to give honor. Why do we give honor? Because she's the weaker vessel. There's some things that our wife should not have to bear. There's things that our wife should not have to deal with. Your wife should not be out mowing the lawn unless she just really wants to mow the lawn, I guess. I don't know about you, but my wife, a block away from the house, she calls me. She's got a car full of groceries. Hey, I'm, I'm a block away. You know what that means? Get your shoes on, get down there because I can't carry the water in. So I'm gonna give honor to her. No, actually, you know what I say? I'm like, hey, there's two other males in this house that have done nothing all day long. We're gonna get them up and get them down there to work. That's me training them how to honor the woman of the house, amen. I was so excited when I had boys because I looked at that trash can and I said, in a couple years, I will never take you out. And that was a lie. Because I'm still taking the trash out. I'm like, what's wrong with this? But we're training and teaching, so we give honor. And why should the men give honor to the wife? Why should we as men, uh, not just because they're weak of wrestles, but why should we give honor? And why should we love them? And why should we respect them? Because if you don't, what does scripture state? Your prayers may not be answered. Wow, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? So sometimes we blame our prayers not being answered because we, we feel that, well, maybe uh, it's the enemy or maybe it's lack of faith. Have you considered that maybe your prayers aren't being answered because you haven't honored your wife? That's what scripture says. As a matter of fact, that very word, be not hindered. If we look at the Greek word, it simply means a road that has been broken up and distraught. That same word is, is used in several other scriptures, that exact same word. How the, Paul even said, I, I was trying to get to you Romans to minister to you, but Satan hindered me. He broke the road up. He kept him from coming. 
So it says that your prayers will be hindered. It says if they can't, that vehicle of prayer cannot get down the road to be answered by God. Husbands, maybe we need to stop looking at at our lack of faith, our so-called lack of faith, or maybe we need to stop saying I'm not praying the right prayer. Maybe it's because we haven't honored our wife. So I don't know about you, but I want my prayers answered. So you see what scripture is stating? You see, there are stipulations and there are ideas that we both have to adhere to. Uh, marriage is a working, it, it, it's working together. It's not one gives 50 and the other gives 50. Compatibility is a very difficult thing. We have a lot of students that walk into our office that, that, uh, that are about to get married and they ask for premarital counseling and, and I believe in premarital counseling. And premarital counseling is not really to help them have a perfect marriage. I believe premarital counseling is simply to help them to deal with the issues so they don't bring them into marriage. Because the first couple of years of marriage is usually dealing with major issues in marriage. I didn't realize this, but, but in my own life, uh, I, I came into marriage with some issues <laughs> that my wife had to deal with. And it took me a long time before I could figure those issues out. I know this sounds crazy, but um, it wasn't until about eight years after we had been married that I realized that I walked into marriage with PTSD. I never served in the military. But a summer before I got married, I was robbed by gunpoint and hit in the back of the head. (laughs) Twelve stitches and knocked out on the ground. Sold everything that I had. And when I came into marriage, I told my wife, I said, I don't know why I do this, but if you hear a noise in the middle of the night, don't wake me up. Gently wake me up. Don't don't holler, don't grab me, don't, don't startle me awake. I thought it was because I had a lot of anger issues that I was a violent person by nature. Uh, my my in laws can attest to this. There was times where if I was startled awake, I'd jump up and just run out of the house. And I'd, I'd be out in the driveway, and, and and I don't really know what I was doing out there. There'd be times I was startled awake, and I I I was up. I would start swinging, and just issues that I brought into it. The, the marriage thing is a very is a very complicated, and the Word of God is trying to teach us how to deal with the issues of life. Why wouldn't we take God's word and apply it? Why wouldn't we take God's word and put it to work? Our prayers are not to be hindered. That's why we honor our wives. Finally, in verse eight, be all of one mind, having compassion one to another. Love his brother and be pitiful and be curious. So now the apostle Peter is making a transition from dealing with the wives and the husbands. And now he's telling us how to live together in harmony with other believers. This is very interesting what Paul uh, is teaching because we see that that Paul's teaching infected the Apostle Peter. There was at one moment where the Apostle Peter was reprimanded by the Apostle Paul. Do y'all remember that, that story? There was a moment that, that the Apostle Peter did not handle his fellowship with unbelievers or Gentiles in the correct manner. He was having a problem with these, with these that didn't fall under the covenant rules. And so what did the Apostle Paul do? He walked up to the Apostle Peter he confronted him, he reprimanded him. He told him this was wrong, this was erroneous behavior. It should never happen again. The apostle Peter, it appears that he course corrected. He did what was right. 
And now he's referencing this because we find that he is taking the very words of the Apostle Paul and he is using them in his letter. Now, this is very interesting because this is the Apostle Peter's last letter and probably the Apostle Peter knows that he's about to be executed. And so he is speaking this as those moments that impacted his life. And so he took open reprimand and he says, from this open reprimand, it helped me to realize that I need to deal with others kindly, but yet also deal with others in a way that is firm, but yet compassionate. He says that we need to be compatible with other believers. He's covering the very areas of Christian life and submission is very important. Believe it or not, as believers, we're submitted one to another. How many knows that we should try to get along together in harmony? And I'm not, without going into to detail, um, right now, I, I would say this across America, probably around the world, that we're seeing levels of anxiety and stress uh, that are off the charts. Uh, just me dealing with it in the occupation that I'm in, I'm, I'm having a lot of students that are, that are, are dealing with um, anxiety in ways that they've never dealt before. And it's really been since the pandemic. I, I thought for sure that it was probably the pandemic, but I've talked to several psychologists and counselors and, and uh, you know what every one of them are telling me? Yes, it had something to do with the pandemic, but you know what most of them are saying? At least the four that I spoke with directly. They said, we believe that this anxiety is being brought on by social media. Social media. You mean social media, those, that wonderful form of communication that allows you to see that everyone but you are on vacation. Everyone but you lives an amazing life. Their house is the most amazing house. You know what, I was, I was uh, looking at these, these cabins on a social media platform and, and uh, I was looking at this, this couple that I know. And for a moment I thought, how, how, how do they afford that cabin? It's, it's, it's a mansion. And they're talking about all the different variances and come to find out it's an Airbnb that they rented for a week. But on social media, all the appearance was they owned this cabin. This was their home. They left out for the week. That's what they left out. But for a few moments, I thought, wow, they, they're, they're doing well, Brother Sleva. They're so blessed. And then next week, they didn't have any pictures of their home, which was a little odd. Isn't it amazing how you can begin to champion ideas or thoughts or come to conclusions that are completely untrue simply off social media? Isn't it incredible how people are so free to speak their mind? Does anyone have uh, that email that you get for, for Indianapolis neighborhoods? Anybody else on that email? I don't know how I got on this email, but I got, they found my email. They got it from something. And now that all these neighborhoods that in the area that I live in, I get a group community email. No one else gets this? Must be a thing. And uh, uh, today someone was so angry uh, because somebody walked up their driveway and cut all of the flowers uh, from around their house, just cut them all off. And they said, who would dare do this? Who would cut all of my flowers off? These beautiful, I don't even know what they're called. They're she had pictures of them. And she said, these flowers are so meaningful because these were the same flowers that were on my, my brother's casket. She was really passionate about this. And she showed pictures of it and they were, they were just chopped off, every one of them. But, but there was tall tale signs. 
You see the leaves that were right next to those flowers had all been nibbled down. And there were people that were championing in saying, Indianapolis is the worst city. It's despicable. Crime is skyrocketing. And, and uh, the, the people are just, there's criminals all around us in these neighborhoods. And, and you need to get uh, the, the camera on your door. And uh, you, you need to record this and figure out who was. And there was a whole thread that was talking about how these horrible, and then they were, some of them were talking about, yes, you know, our, our little park, play area, pavilion in the neighborhood got vandalized. I bet it was those same teenagers that came up to your house and cut all the tops of the flowers off. And finally, one person, the only person that had sense said, hey, you know, I think that's probably rabbits because I had the same flowers and they ate all mine too. And sure enough, then others begin to chime in. But it was amazing how they came to this conclusion about what shouldn't be or what was happening. Ladies and gentlemen, the Apostle Peter is saying, as believers, we need to connect with one another. We need to believe together. We need to submit ourselves one to another. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and the ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And so our subjection to one another, our communion with one another, allows us to believe what is right and what is correct. The Word of God is a great roadmap. The Word of God is exactly what we need to live our life as believers, to be pleasing towards God, to accomplish His perfect will. I'm over time and I'm trying to hurry. Please stand with me. The Apostle Peter goes on and he begins to instruct. He talks about how the evildoers and how they're going to be judged. He talks about how others will come against the church. He talks about the commitment and sacrifice of, of those that have submitted themselves into the perfect will of God to follow after his plan. And then the apostle Peter gets to this place where he talks about the true nature of who we follow, and that is Jesus Christ. And he talks about how he suffered for our sins, how he gave himself so that others may truly know him. And when we think about what the Apostle Peter begins to talk about when it comes to what Christ's sacrifice truly included and that at any moment during the time that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane to where they came in and apprehended him, to where they beat him with a whip, to where they, they gouged his side and placed a crown of thorns upon his head and they nailed him to the cross that at any moment he could have reversed his decision to follow through and could have called thousands of angels down from heaven and pulled him away back to whence he came. But his suffering was for you and I. I want us to say this, the word of God is a powerful illustration of how we are to live. And in that powerful illustration comes guidelines, comes ideas, and those ideas and those guidelines bring us into true anointing. And so as a believer, we know that we rest in Christ and we follow after him. And one day we're going to live again. <laughs> the dead in Christ shall rise and God has prepared a home for us in eternity. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. One more time, can we just lift our hands? Lord, we thank you for your touch, your hand that's been upon us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have its way, that you would keep us and watch over us. I pray, Lord, that you would take us from this place and bring us back again on Sunday. I pray, Lord, that you would bless and pour out your spirit on every believer, strengthen families and strengthen husbands and wives. Keep your hand upon them, we pray. We give you glory, we give you honor. In Jesus' name.